In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So sometime last week, maybe the week before last, Alice sent me a copy of the Reverend Philo Sprague's sermon on the 50th anniversary of St. John's. The Sunday, 50 years to the day, after the first service this church celebrated, January 5th, 1840. On that first Sunday in 1840, uh, that first congregation was made up of about 75 people. And the church's first year of ministry was supported financially by 24 subscribers, what we might now call 24 pledging units, who were able to employ a part-time priest. Suggests to me the old saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same, with the caveat that the operating budget that church set for that first year, in addition to the $10,000 needed to build this church building, was $345. It was a less expensive time. Now, of course, St. John's has had multiple golden ages since then, and multiple periods of struggle and decline. Already by Philo Sprague's sermon in 1890, the church had had its ups and downs. Like many churches, its history has been a roller coaster. If you're mathematically inclined, maybe a sine wave, alternating periods of prosperity and health and trickier times. A story of highs and lows, of times when the church had multiple mortgages on the building without realizing it, and times when the Sunday school was jam-packed. Years where the place wasn't watertight, let alone warm, even in three-quarters of the building like this morning, and decades when you couldn't walk down the street without meeting one of the dedicated disciples of the Reverend Mr. Cutler. But throughout it all, there has been one constant fact— No matter how full or how empty this building has been on a Sunday morning, this church has only ever been a tiny fraction of our community. And I can guarantee you that people asked themselves in 1840 and 1890 and 1940 and 1990 a question that many of you may have asked yourselves at some point in a moment of reflection about the life of the church. What can little St. John's ever do? To which Jesus has an answer that is, for once, refreshingly straightforward. So let your light shine before others, he tells his disciples, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus says this and he tells the disciples that he hasn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And I think that he's thinking of the great biblical passages he'd grown up reading and hearing like the words of the prophet Isaiah from that first reading. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, Isaiah prophesies, then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you offer food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness, and your gloom be like the noonday. If you remove the yoke from among you, then your light shall rise in the darkness, Isaiah says. In this way, Jesus adds, let your light shine, not hidden under a bushel, but on a lampstand, so that it gives light to all the people in the world. Now there's a way of reading these words from Isaiah that's about big societal systems, and it's not wrong. Isaiah is speaking to the people of Israel. He's a guy who hangs out in the company of the king. 
He's addressing a nation and a society, and he's talking about their national, economic, and social and political life, not their personal morality. He tells them that God's own divine favor depends on things like injustice and oppression among them and between them. If they let the oppressed go free, if they break every yoke, if they share their bread with the hungry and let the homeless pour into their homes, then their light shall break forth like the dawn. But if not, and a people who Isaiah is addressing after decades of exile don't need to be reminded what the but-if-not part of the sentence is when God's favor departs from you. They know what it means to walk in darkness. So God's addressing them as a nation. God's demanding social justice, the end of oppression, and all of that is true. But it's also true at the same time that this kind of a reading can be discouraging once you've been around as a church for 183 years. Because we, the people of St. John's, have always been, and still are, too few and too small to set much of an agenda for the life of our neighborhood, let alone our commonwealth or our nation. The prophet Isaiah is speaking to the whole people of Israel. But even if you add up all the churches in our neighborhood, all the churches in our city, all the people who might be hearing Isaiah's words this Sunday morning, we're just a few of the people of Charlestown or Cambridge or Somerville or Boston. And it can be frustrating or maybe overwhelming to hear these demands. We would love to feed every hungry person in our community. We would love to house every unhoused person we see, especially this weekend. But we can't. Even if we pooled all our resources, not only St. John's, but every church in the neighborhood, we couldn't possibly do it on our own. And yet, I find it interesting that neither Jesus nor Isaiah lays the full responsibility on us for the entire world. Isaiah says, if you remove the yoke from among you, and those three words really do make a difference. It would be nice, I'll admit, if we could break every yoke, as Isaiah says, but we can at least remove the yoke from among us. It would be nice if we could feed every hungry person in the world, but we can at least help feed the hungry who are in our midst. While we always need to keep our sight on that ultimate goal, while we aspire to that dream of a fed and a warm world, we can't let ourselves be immobilized by a sense of powerlessness, of being too small, because there is always something we can do as individuals, as families, as a church, in our neighborhood, simply within our own selves to live a little more justly, to share a little more generously, to let our light shine a little more brightly. And it's that image, most of all, that I love, of your light shining. Because Jesus doesn't tell us to become light when we are something else, and Jesus doesn't tell us to shine more brightly or to go around uh, setting other people alight as if we were candles. No, Jesus tells us to let our light shine, to be the people we are by nature, and to take away the things that obscure that nature. Not to hide our light under a bushel basket, but to put it up on a lampstand where it can shine out into the world. Because our light is, for the most part, pretty bright. It's never perfect. There's always a yoke that can be removed from among us, a hungry person who can be fed, fingers that are pointed that maybe should not be. But for the most part, our light is pretty bright. Jesus doesn't tell us that we or our church are broken. 
Jesus doesn't tell us that we're doing everything wrong. Jesus tells us to let our light shine, to let the world see what a good and a beautiful community this is. And after all, this is the only way that we can change the world, by becoming a little more like that community of justice and peace and love he envisions, by removing the yoke from among us one more time, and letting God's light rise upon us, and letting our light shine into the world a little more. So, dear people of St. John's, after 183 years, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one lights a lamp and hides it under a basket, but puts it up on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to God in heaven. Amen.